So we, today we are, are continuing our, our way through the book of Galatians. Uh, so if you, if you have a Bible near you, one of the Pew Bibles or your own Bible, um, I would encourage you to, to turn there. Uh, Galatians chapter 4. So it's hard to believe that we're already moving into the, the fourth chapter. Everything's falling. Here we go. Now, just to catch you up to speed on just the overview of, of the book of Galatians, it's six chapters. The first two chapters really are looking at what's the authority of the gospel, the central message of Christianity, where did it come from? And, and Paul says that it didn't come from any man, he wasn't taught it, but he received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then in chapters three and four, which is where we are now, Paul is just talking about the, the nature of the gospel. What is the gospel actually about? And he, he shows that it's by, about the fact that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. And over the past few weeks, he's, he's looked at the fact that, well, okay, if we're saved completely by God's action, not by the law, which we, we read earlier, then did God, why did he give the Ten Commandments? Why did he give laws and rules in the Old Testament? We, and we saw that, that God gave it to, number one, point us to, to Christ and the, and the fact that we actually can't do it on our own. And then as we experience that salvation, we, we can return no longer slaves to God's rules, but actually having freedom in what he has done for us. And last week also we, we talked about the fact that, that as Christians, our identity, who we are, is rooted not in who we were, but in the fact that we have been adopted into to God's family. So again, Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer slaves, a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Holy, holy God, we thank you that, that you have, have given your, your spirit, and that you are, you are a great God. You are the, the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who was and is and is to come. And we pray that as we study this passage about you sending your spirit, that you would, in fact, send your, your spirit of, of wisdom and revelation and knowledge and all that is holy, and that we would be able to see your glory, the glory of your Son, and more and more cry, Abba, Father, as we study this together. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before the, the Civil War, or really before, during, and, and after the Civil War, this kind of literature emerged that was called slave narratives. And some of you maybe read slave narratives when you were in school or more recently. I listened to a lot of audiobooks, and I listened to one recently 
called 30 Years a Slave. And there's another one called 12 Years a Slave, but this one's different. And, and the subtitle is From Bondage to Freedom by Lewis Hughes. And he was a, a slave that was born in Charlottesville, Virginia, was sold to a plantation down in Mississippi. And he talks about all of the, the sorrows and the, the difficulty of growing up in, in slavery. He, he talks about trying to escape several times, but each time he was captured, was returned, and of course was treated very harshly as a, as a result of attempting to escape. But finally, he, he made it out of slavery during the, the chaos of the Civil War and was able to make it back to his family in Mississippi to um, bring them out as all the, the slaves were being emancipated and, and let free. So very interesting history. But there are a lot of other works that are similar. I haven't read all of these, but these are some of the, the titles. Uh, Recollections of Slavery from a Runaway Slave, 1838. 12 Years a Slave, 1853. Life of Joshua Hinson, formerly a slave, now an inhabitant of Canada. That's my favorite title. Um, 1849, um, narrative of Frederick Douglass, an American slave, written by himself. Incidents of a Slave Girl, 1861. So really interesting literature to read, just uh, this, this process of moving from, from slavery to, to freedom and all that entails. And so I highly recommend it. But really, according to the scripture, every Christian could write a kind of slave narrative uh, that it, it, you saw in our, our text that Paul talks about us being enslaved. And if we were to give the, the subtitle to uh, just a Christian slave narrative, it would sound something like this. A former slave who became a son through the sovereign action of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that's really the, the title that, that each one of us who knows the Lord could put on our spiritual autobiography. And really, we see this summarized in what could be the summary of our slave narrative in verse 7, the very last verse, that if you track just the flow of thought of Paul here, this is really where he hits. The, this is the main point of what I'm saying. Verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So it's this, it's this movement from slavery, but not just to sonship, but to, to freedom, but actually to sonship, to being adopted into God's family. And even in that verse, you see that that, that process of, of going from slaves to sons isn't accomplished through things that we do or through ceremonies, but he says that it is through God, through his action. So now let's, we'll, we'll go back and we'll just go section by section through this passage. And really, it falls out in three sections, and we'll look at each section individually. So verse 1 to 3 is that we were slaves. And then verse 4 to 5, we were slaves, but God sent his son so that we can be adopted as sons. And then finally, verse 6, that we were slaves, but God sent his spirit so that we can cry out to God as father. So that's where we're going. So let's start then with that, that first section, that we were slaves. And I think that that can be something in and of itself that's surprising to say, because probably most of us don't think of ourselves as slaves. We think of ourselves as people who are free, who can choose to live life the, the way that we want. But clearly, that is what our, our passage is saying. Look at verse 1. 
he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And so Paul is here returning to this illustration of what he's talking about, starting with an illustration, and then he'll move to unpack it in, in different ways. And it's something that he's continuing, actually, from chapter 3. So in chapter 3, he talked about the, the law of God being this uh, guardian, this manager in our life before we come to Christ. And, and he says specifically that we were enslaved to that guardian. And, and what Paul then does is compare that to uh, essentially the way that people were, were schooled and the way that they were disciplined in ancient Greece. So their cultural context when this was written. Because often children would be assigned somebody called a pedagogos, where we get the word pedagogue. And the, the pedagogos would accompany them to school. Usually he himself was a slave. But one of his big jobs was discipline, and often very severely, that if the kid went out of line, the child might be beaten in some way. Because remember that, that this is not modern-day America. This is a, a very traditional society where children before the age of maturity were often treated very harshly if they stepped out of line. And that, as we said, they might be beaten for disobedience, kind of like a slave. They, of course, this is when I was thinking that children today might say this, but of course it's not as harsh today, but they're, they're forced to work without being paid <laughs> in school, right? That I probably could imagine kids saying that today. But there again, you know, similar, similar to the type of slavery that they're, they're working, not getting paid for it. Um, they don't have the, the rights and the, the privileges of a free citizen. And so that's why Paul says there in verse 1 that their, the child is no different than a slave. And at first we think, really, Paul, that, that's kind of an exaggeration. And I think he is, to some extent, kind of hyping up the, the point because it, it comes later on. But if we were to say, what's the, the essence of what he's He's saying, well, he, he's saying that each and every one of us begins as a type of slave, that we are enslaved to a, a guardian. And you'll notice that, that he calls that, that guardian the elemental principles of the world. Look at, at verse 3. In the same way also, we also when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, if you just hone in on that, elementary principles of the world, I mean, that's one of those phrases that when we're doing our, our quiet time, we, we just kind of go quickly over it and maybe don't, don't think about it because it's a, a little bit confusing at first. So what, it, what is Paul talking about when he says elementary principles? Well, one of the things that's helpful whenever we come across something like that that's confusing in Scripture is actually just to go look at other English translations. Because that's, that's a real privilege of speaking English is the fact that we have so many different uh, translations that are looking at the original and rendering it in different ways. And often, different translations will show different aspect of what's actually going on in the original language, not competing, but kind of supplementing. So for instance, here are some of the ways that it's translated in other places. Elemental spirits of the universe, elemental things of the world, elements of the world, basic forces of the world, 
elemental spirits, spiritual forces of the world. And so if you take all of those together, you know, slightly different each one, but we kind of get a sense of, of what's going on in the, the original, that, that what Paul is talking about here is the, base, the basic stuff behind everything that, that is made up around us. Um, this would actually be the language that somebody might have talked at that time about basic elements like water or wind, earth, fire, pre-scientific elements. Um, but also, people could have used this sort of phrase to talk about just the basic elements of anything. So if we think about the ABCs are the elementary principles of written language, the, those constituent parts, or, or musical notes that you see in your, on your page. Those are elementary principles of music and, and notation. And so then, okay, that's what that means. But then why is Paul saying that somehow we are enslaved to the elementary principles of the world? So even that, first, it's, it's confusing to us. Well, first and foremost, Paul is talking here, he's still talking about the law of God. He, he's, remember I said back in chapter 3, he talked about the law as something that enslaves us. In verse 23 of chapter 3, he says that we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And even there, he compared it to that pedagogos, that, that guardian that accompanies children and, and disciplines them. And so he's not beginning something completely new here, but it's, it's including the law of God, that is this elemental principles of the world, the, the elemental parts. But then again, that raises another question. We just have so many questions. If, if, he's, if he means the law, why doesn't he just say the law? Why, not, why bother saying elemental principles of the world when he could say just the law? And I think that really what he's doing here is he's been talking a lot about the nation of Israel and the fact that Israel was enslaved to the law, looking to it as for their acceptance with God. But then he's, he's thinking about his Gentile readers there in Galatia, and he doesn't want them to feel like they're somehow off the hook to say, well, yeah, we know that the Israelites, they're enslaved to the law, but hey, we're Greeks. We're, we didn't grow up in that context, so we're not slaves, that we're, we are free. And so what, what Paul is including then is it encompasses the law, but actually is far bigger than that, that it, that it includes the, the fundamental principles of human thought, everything around us that would hold us captive, that enslaves us when we are outside of Christ. And so really what, what it's saying is that there are religious elemental principles of the world that can hold us captive. And there are irreligious elemental principles of the world that can hold us captive. So for the Jews, they're, they're enslaved to the, to the law, to the, just the, the way that their society functions. And he's saying, you know, the Gentiles also, they're, they're enslaved too to these basic principles of, of life that is holding them captive. And I think that that's actually really important for us today, that some of you here may have actually experienced this slavery to religious elemental principles. Probably none of us would have put it in that term, but we can begin to spot it in our life if we ask questions like these, that do we pray because we love God or because we're afraid 
of God and that we, we think that he will not love us if we don't pray? Or do we, love, do we go to church because we love being around people who, who know Christ or because we think that in some way we're going to be able to, to rack up points with God on the, the last day because we're going to church? Or do we give money to, to good causes or give money to church or ministries uh, because we just want to give back some of what God's given us? Or are we thinking that, that okay, if I, if I give enough, maybe this will offset a few bad things that I've done in my life? Or do we think that because we're, we're reading our Bible that maybe God's going to be really, really pleased with us instead of thinking that you know, reading Scripture is this opportunity to know the, the God that we love? And so really, as we, as we think about those kinds of questions, we may actually discover that we are a slave to elemental principles of religion. And let, me, let me explain what I mean, that those things are good things, that prayer is a great thing, just like going to church, just like reading your Bible. Um, but when we become enslaved to those things, it, it changes. Because right, those are the, the ABCs of of healthy Christian living, right? They're things that we do want in our life. They're elemental principles. But when we look to those and say, okay, this is how I'm going to get to heaven. This is how I'm going to be accepted by God. Then suddenly we become slaves of those things. We become slaves to these principles that God has given us to to strengthen us. And so you can almost think about it like a farmer, right? So you have a farmer and a slave who farms. And so there are the elemental principles of what they do. And they might look really similar on the outside, where the, the farmer, he wakes up early, he, he goes out, he gets his plow ready, he works hard all day, he runs the plow across the field. The slave does exactly the same external motion, that, that he wakes up early, he cleans everything, he pushes the plow across the field, he works all day. And so what's the difference then between the free farmer and the, the slave? Well, it's not, it's not the elemental principles of, of what they're doing, but it's actually the, the motivation behind it. What is driving that action? Where the farmer is being driven by the fact that, hey, I, I have this property. This has been in my family for years and generations, and I want to be a, a steward of this, and I want to see plants grow so I can I can go out and, and feed people in, in society. And so that motivates him to work. Where the slave, doing the same action, is being motivated by, by fear of, of judgment, of saying, well, if I don't get up and do this, I'm going to be beaten or, or I'll be sold. Uh, and so they're, they're living in, in fear, and they're, they're doing it from the wrong motivation. And it, it's the same for us, that when we, are, when we are free in Christ, we have these elemental principles of religion that we, yes, we, do, we pray, we read our Bibles, we, we go to church, but we're doing it as a response to what God has done. Not a slave to those things, saying that this is how we're going to be accepted in the sight of God. And the reason for this, this slavery, though, goes back to the fact that the law is something that we don't perfectly follow. And, and even the law itself says that if, if we fall short of the law, we become slaves to it. And the witness of Scripture is clear that the, the wages of sin is death. And that we, when we sin, when we fail to follow God's way of, of living, 
that we, we begin to die physically, we die spiritually, and ultimately we die eternally. And as much as we might try to work our way out to think that we're, maybe we're just indentured servants where if we work long enough, we'll be able to work our way out. But the witness of Scripture is that that's not the case. We're not just indentured servants, but we are people who, no matter how much we work, cannot pay off the debt that we owe to God. We are slaves, and we need to be rescued. And so those are the, the elemental principles of religion that enslave us. But remember, we said that there are also irreligious principles that enslave us as well. And that may be where, where some of you are, that, that you say, well, I, I grew up in, in religion, and I found it to be slavery. So I agree with all that you're, you're saying of being enslaved to, to religion. But then maybe you think that religion is just about rules. It tells you what to do. Even the culture around us generally says that irreligion, that's freedom. That's life. That's doing, living the way that you want religion. That's bondage. That's following rules, having to do certain things. But according to the Bible, irreligion, life apart from Christ, is just as much slavery as it is to try to work our way to God through false religion. And we have these elemental desires that drive everything that we do. It could be this, this deep hunger for, for approval, that we just need approval, or, or a deep desire for sexual fulfillment, or romantic fulfillment, or a desire for power, or success, or pleasure, these elemental principles that, that drive our actions. And what we find, though, is, as, we, as we look at this, is we think we're free, but really, so often, we're just slaves to these elemental desires of the world, that we think we're free, but then everything we're doing, all of our actions are being driven by the fact that we need to be, have approval from people around us. Or we think that we're, we're free, but then everything we're doing is for the sake of some sort of romantic interest or to keep a romantic interest. We're, we're slaves. Or we think that we're free, but then a whole host of things that you could fill in. It's fear, anger, pleasure, guilt, shame. And, and then it's, it's not that the things that we're doing in themselves are necessarily wrong. It's similar to the farmer and the, and the slave, that they're both doing the same action in the field. But again, our, our motivation, are, are we being driven by slavery to these desires and elemental principles, or are we free? But thankfully, God doesn't leave us here as slaves to these elemental principles, that, that he provides a, a way of escape. And so this brings us then to the next section of our, of our passage, that we were slaves but God then sent his son so that we can be adopted as sons. Look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And I, these are just incredible verses here that just pack in so much of what Christianity is about. And we could spend so long unpacking everything that's here. Uh, but just notice some of the, the, the aspects of this redemption that we have from slavery. In verse, beginning of verse 4, it says that it was in the fullness of time 
that God sent forth his son, that, that God reached into the world to rescue us from slavery at the absolute perfect time. It wasn't too early. It wasn't too late. And it, it was the, the fullness of time just historically, if you look at what happened, that the Old Testament prophets had been predicting for so long this Messiah who was going to come and save his people and redeem them. There was the fullness of time. Or the sacrificial system of ancient Israel that they had been uh, worshiping that way, showing that, w- that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Getting people ready for the idea that, that a Messiah must suffer and die for sins. As we've said, the law that people were, were taught, that it was showing that it was a guardian, showing that they couldn't work their way up to God, what God's standard actually is, why we need a Savior. Also, the, the foreign oppression that had been coming upon Israel for so long, that all the way from the Old Testament, whether it was Assyria or Babylon or Greece or Rome, it had been intensifying, and people had this deep sense that something has to give here with the fact that we're being just beat up every day as God's covenant people, that eventually a Messiah is going to come. But then also it was the perfect time just in the the structure of the way the world was set up, that Roman roads had connected so much of the known world. So as Christianity grew and spread, it could go throughout the world in a way that just would not have been possible even a few hundred years earlier. And same thing for for language and and custom, that, that people could actually speak the same language in so many many parts of the known world at that point. And so, again, Christianity was able to spread. So it it was just this perfect ordering of of timing, the the fullness of time that God sent forth his son to save us from our slavery. And really, that's something that I think we can take comfort from just in our our day-to-day life, that if if God is able to order these great events of, of nations and continents and religions to have the perfect time for his son to come historically, then he can order the events of our lives individually and personally so that he can come to us at the right moment. The God maybe feels like he comes too late sometimes when we are enslaved to religious or irreligious principles of the world. Maybe it feels like he comes too early sometimes where we wish we could keep doing what we're doing a little bit longer before he, he comes. But he, he never comes too early or too late. And it makes me think of in, in Lord of the Rings, which maybe some of you have seen the movie or, or read the book, uh, when Frodo runs to meet the wizard Gandalf, uh, Gandalf says, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. And that's exactly the way that it is for God. He's, he's never late. He's never early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Wherever we are in our life, he is there when we, we need him most. So we see this, this perfect timing. But then also you'll see after that that at the perfect time, he provided this perfect savior to come and redeem us. And he was perfect because he was fully God, 100% God. It says that God sent forth his son to be born. It doesn't say that the son became, that he created his son, but this is the son that, as John says, was the word in beginning with God, who, who created the world, who is God himself, the, the second person of the Trinity, who is sent forth to be born. 
It couldn't speak this way of any mere creature. And that's good news for us because it means that he's actually able to bear the weight of God's wrath against sin, being God. He's not swallowed up by it. But then also he is this perfect savior because he is fully man. And that's what it means when it says that he was born of woman. That he didn't just appear to be human, he was truly born of Mary. And the, he, so he not only humbled himself to, to be born in this, this, dirty slave, this dirty stable, but he humbled himself to take our frail nature upon him. There's a song that says, frail flesh. Um, and that's what he took upon himself, frail flesh like ours. And he did it not for himself, but he did it for our sake. And, that, and that's what he means next when he says that he was born of woman and he was born under the law, that he submitted himself to the law. He submitted himself to the elemental principles of the world, but he wasn't enslaved to the law. He wasn't enslaved to the elemental principles of the world, but he actually obeyed in each and every place where Adam failed, where Israel failed. He obeyed it in every way that you and I fail. And when we trust in him, we receive his obedience to the law, his perfect fulfillment of that. And it's actually through him being subject to the law that we can actually be free of the law as our guardian and taskmaster. But then, so we, we see this perfect savior coming at a perfect time. And also just this glorious purpose for which he comes that it says that he came in order to redeem those who are under the law, and that's us. But then he also came so that we can receive adoption as sons. I mean, think of that. If an if a abolitionist back in the day were to go and rescue a slave from slavery, and then what, probably what the abolitionist might do is say, all right, now you can go live your life free, but imagine if that person then said, yeah, I purchased your freedom. Now I'm actually adopting you into my family to give you all the, the rights and, and privileges of sonship. But that's exactly what, what God does for us, that we were his enemies. We were raging against him. But then in the fullness of time, he sends this perfect Savior, this God-man, to live in our place, to redeem us from slavery frees us, but then actually adopts us and brings us into his house. Just incredible grace of God. But before we move on, though, to the, to the third section here, I just want to say a quick word just about the, the language that Paul is using here, where he says that we might receive adoption as sons. And I think that, that some of us might wish that Paul had said sons and daughters. Why is he saying adoption as sons? Remember, even just at the very end of chapter 3, he said there's no male or female, um, that, that we are all in Christ, are equal heirs to, to salvation. So what is, what is he getting at here? Is he just leaving women out of the picture because that was his cultural context? Well, I heard a really helpful story that helped me understand this and cast a lot of light on it. And it was a, a woman who was born in the, in the Middle East in a culture where women were treated truly as second-class citizens, where they had no rights, no privileges. All the rights and privileges would go to the son, especially to the firstborn son, to the heir. And so when she became a Christian, 
she was so excited by passages like this in Scripture that says that we all receive adoption as sons. And what she said was that if, if the Scripture had said receive adoption as sons and daughters, what she would have heard at her time and place is, oh, okay, so I'll be a second-class citizen in heaven as well. But when it says that she could receive adoption as son, that she could be an heir, it's saying that, that what she has received in Christ is not some sort of second-class citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, but what she is receiving is actually the, the best of the inheritance that we all receive in Christ, that, that, that God himself, that life everlasting in the new heavens and new earth, and the extreme comfort of what Christ has done for us. And so and that, that's what we the promise we have, too, is adoption as sons. So now, just as we, as we close, then, let's look at this final section. So we were slaves, but then God sent his son so that we can cry out to God as our father. Look at verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Again, just the, the beauty and complexity of, of Scripture that it's the whole trinity that is involved in saving us from our slavery to the elemental principles. It's, it's God the Father who's, who's sending his son in the fullness of time as the, as the God-man. And then it says that, that because we're son, that God the Father sends God the Holy Spirit. And then it calls him the, not just the Holy Spirit, but the spirit of his son. That this, this, this triune work of God in bringing us to, to life. And, and really the, the cream of it, the, the, the most amazing part is that part at the end where it says that we are, that the Spirit comes and, and dwells within us. Because think of the progression, we're slaves, and then we're freed by Christ. And, and that would be amazing if it was left there. And then it goes, no, you've been freed, but you have been adopted as sons and daughters in our context, right? Um, and then from there, that, that, that's amazing. And then it goes even a step further, that God's not only out there, but God then sends his spirit to, to dwell in us, to, to live in us. My, I heard of a violin teacher once who had this virtuoso student who was progressing so rapidly that he needed a lesson every day. And so eventually the parents hired the violin teacher to come live at their home. So here the teacher moves in, the student's, is able to have lessons every day, able to have them there when he, when he practices. And for a violin teacher, that maybe sounds like a bit much, right? <laughs> we wouldn't want that. But with the Holy Spirit, he's the, the teacher, the, the comforter who comes to us in Christ when we're sons, and, and he sets up shop inside of us. And so that he can give us constantly the, the, what, exactly what we need to see the, the beauty of God, to see the glory of Christ. And you'll notice that, that he, he's not just giving them some sort of extraordinary spiritual experience. But look at what the Spirit does as he comes into our heart. That he cries out, Abba, Father. And Abba was just the, the ancient word for daddy. It's just a very simple word. I mean, with our daughter, Helen, we've been working to try to get her to say dada or mama. And she's not quite there yet. Uh, but if you were in Galatia and you had a baby, you'd be saying Abba. Abba, trying to get them to, to say 
this very simple babble phrase of, but yet finally addressing this parent who, who loves them and holding them in the arms. And that is exactly what we have as we're born again. That when we're born again, we come out as these, these spiritual infants who are brought onto the lap of our, of our father. And we get to, to with a spirit bearing witness in us, to say, Abba, to say, Daddy, to say, Father. Which almost feels irreverent, ir, ir, um, ir, I can't say the word, uh, irreverent at first, right? Does Daddy, can we address God that way? Well, that's what we see in Scripture, that we can because that is who he is, being brought from slaves to, to children, that we can crawl on his, his lap and know that he is this loving Heavenly Father who cares for us and who has provided a way for us to escape slavery. And I know that probably some of you have had bad experiences with, with fathers, or perhaps you've had great experience with fathers. But when we call out to God as Abba, Father, that really what he, he is the most extreme version of whatever we're thinking. That if, if, we, if you had a great father, that, that God is a father who is infinitely better. Um, and if you had a father that, that was not a good father, that, that God is the, is the complete opposite. Every way where your father failed, he succeeds and he loves and cares. And it is this love then that is actually on offer through Christ today, if we will repent and trust in him. And our, our first step to, to take hold of that love is to admit where we are, to admit either our religious slavery, our irreligious slavery, the things that hold us captive. And as we, as we do that, we, we begin to, to look to Christ as the one who can obey where we can't obey, the one who has done all that we could never do. And, and we trust in him, we're united to him, our sin is counted to him. He bears that on the cross. His perfect obedience to the law is counted to us. So when God looks at us, he sees somebody who has obeyed the Ten Commandments perfectly. Even though none of us have, that's how we're counted in God's sight through Christ. And then as we're adopted into God's family, he sends a spirit who dwells in us, who cries out, Abba, Father. And, and this would then be our slave narrative that we would write, that our slave narrative would be, verse 7, as we said, that we are, are no longer slaves, but sons and sons and heirs through God. And it's ultimately that reality, that amazing reality that we see here in the Lord's Supper. That we see not elemental principles of the world. Yeah, we have elements of, of bread and, and wine that are very, of juice that are very ordinary. But yet, what, in Christ, what we have here is, is not a, a good work that we're doing to, to earn God's favor, but it actually is showing what he has done for us in, in history, that he sent forth his son who was born of a woman, that he had a real body. We think of that as the, the body is broken, and he had real blood like our blood, and that blood was shed. And as he, as he died, as he, he suffered, taking our sins, but then rising from the dead, because he is God himself, sent forth. But then also, it is at this meal where the, the Spirit really testifies powerfully in our heart, that, that cry of Abba, Father, that we come to this, this meal as children through Christ. And, and we don't believe that Christ is bodily present with us here, but we do believe that he is spiritually present, that the spirit of 
the Son is with us, that he is dwelling in us. And so, yeah, this is a communion that we have together as Christ's body, but it's also communion that we have with Christ through his Spirit as we feed on him by faith in the presence of God the Father, this Trinitarian work that we saw in our text.